Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Some of you know this about me already, but I can say that I'm a big fan of so many of the preachers of what should now be considered a bygone era. Famous names you'll recognize, like Charles Spurgeon and E.M. Bounds and Harry Ironside and George Whitfield, as well as names you may not know, such as Paris Reedhead and Watchman Nee. Incidentally, I think at least some of you are thinking, why did he leave out such big names as D.L. Moody and Billy Graham? He must have done that accidentally. Well, to be honest, let me just say that the omission was not accidental. Now, I know, I know that's sacrilegious, but I do have my reasons. Anyhow, the one thing that runs through the sermons of these men is the devotion to the foreign missions. Over and over, there was this call to go to the farthest flung corners of the world to help save the poor heathen. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think that is a noble and necessary goal. But for some reason, we've managed to forget that we have a Christ crisis right here in the so-called developed world. You know, ever since I started chapel ministries with Catherine, I've had more than a few humorous experiences. But nothing is funnier than trying to explain to complete strangers what we're all about. To watch the look on some people's faces as they try and stretch their minds to figure out what we're saying. It's enough to get a chuckle or two out of me. So, so you're saying you're a church? Well, no. Then you're missionaries? Not exactly. Bible college? Well, not that either. And it's even more pronounced when trying to explain our modus operandi to people we rely on for assistance, like our attorneys or accountants. Well, the bottom line is that we aren't very conventional in our approach to spreading God's word. And I happen to think that's a good thing. We are that way on purpose. We're unconventional. We're decidedly non-traditional. We don't do things like most other organizations. And we don't do things like other organizations just to be different. We don't try to stand out, try to be kooky or weird. That's not why we do that. It's like I always tell my daughter, Samantha, if everyone is doing it, then it's probably no good. You see, over the years, I've discovered that doing anything God's way is going to be unpopular even in the church world, especially in the church world. Standing up for God usually means standing up alone, or at best, with very few others. This is especially true when trying to build a ministry. The church, the world over, is experiencing a very distressing trend. The number of regular Sunday morning attendees is dropping. And it's dropping dramatically and, frankly, has been for a couple of decades. Now, that in itself is disturbing. But what's far more troubling to me is how church leadership has decided to react to this decline. 
You see, Christianity, by and large, in reaction to the dwindling attendance, has stopped being about Christ and has become more about, well, all sorts of other things. It's become about social issues. It's become about political issues. It's become about money and power and influence and making America great and defending our way of life. And that usually only means getting and keeping more of my own stuff. I'm convinced that if Peter and Paul were to walk into a modern day church, they would feel completely out of place. I'm sure Paul would sit patiently and listen to the pulpit for about five minutes and then get up and say, yeah, but what about Christ? You see, we have decided in order to stop the bleeding, we had better meet the demands of the people. And listen, I honestly believe that most of the time, church leadership believes they're doing what's best for the church. Listen, we live in the era of meeting them halfway. We view bargain and compromise as honorable no matter what the cost. That's the popular thing to do. That's what gets the world's admiration. You got to have that. Giving up more than you had at the beginning just so as to improve social standing and acceptance. And then eventually, we submit to a re-examination of what was once sacred. And Paul predicted it. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, and that just means desires, their own wants, but after their own wants shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. We feel the pressure. We agree to review, reassess, and then revise. All just so we don't alienate the people. You know, we read in God's word that certain things are aberrant to him. But then, under pressure from the itching ear crowd, we decide to judge God to be too rigid. We, we accuse God of being unevolved. We accuse God of not being progressive. God needs to keep up with the times. But, but, but God, it's okay. We'll keep on wearing our robes. We'll still pray before our services. We'll still have that song service. Yes, the songs say different things than your word says, but on occasion, Jesus is mentioned. Not as much as I'm mentioned, but he's in there some. Oh, in case you're not picking up on it, I'm being sarcastic. Very few people want truth. Not unless truth makes them feel good. Don't talk to me about duty and sacrifice and death. Tell me about blessing. Tell me about the land that flows with milk and honey. Tell me about that 100-fold thing. Don't mention forgiveness. I've got nothing to forgive. Me change? Why should I change? I was born this way. So we decide to change God. The people are not satisfied with the God of the Bible, so we have to change the Bible. In fact, you know what? Let's just ignore it. I mean, that's the only way to get them through the door. Most of the time, that's the only way to keep them in the seats. Oh, and, and we've done our research. We, we've hired a consultant. We should have prayed, but who has that kind of time? Just ask the experts. Isn't God the expert? Isn't that why Jesus asked God to send us the spirit of truth? 
Well, maybe he used to be the expert, but he hasn't progressed enough. God has lost touch with the people. We've surpassed God in our moral standing. So we have to ask one of those companies that promises to lay out the proper formula to keep the congregation happy. And anyhow, God's better at understanding. God's the forgiving one. He's the quiet one. We don't fear God. We fear them. So, we change God. Leviticus 10.1 And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. One of God's favorite words is holy. Of course, you know that I mean the original language words that get translated into the English word holy. He probably loves the English word holy as well. Let's just for a moment look at the Old Testament word that gets translated into that word holy. Now we'll stick with the Old Testament because the New Testament is nearly identical in meaning. In the Old Testament, the word Kodesh appears in the original manuscripts. Now, this is review for some of you. Kodesh gets translated into the English word holy, and at its root, it means something that has a dedicated purpose. Now, in the Bible, that always means something that is dedicated to God. A dedicated purpose in the Bible means a dedicated thing to God. If something in the Old Testament is called holy, it means it is there for God's use. Now, now keep something in mind, by the way. We're not to assume that Kodesh just means something that belongs to God, because really everything belongs to God. There's more to it than that. Kodesh means God has set aside something for his exclusive use. Now, this next bit is critical to your understanding of all of this, especially as it relates to today's lesson. The most important thing to remember about holy things or people is that their holiness is given to them. It's given to them to show that those things, those holy things and people are not for profane use. That's also a biblical word, profane. Now, the word profane, the English word profane, has lost most of its original meaning, but Profane simply means common. Something is profane if it is common. Nothing special, not remarkable, not regular. Fit for, not something that's fit for everyday use by anybody. Profane actually comes from the Latin profano, which can be tr translated not allowed in the temple or more literally out in front of the temple. Things inside the Roman temples were for the gods, while things outside the temple weren't, and therefore lesser. In the Bible, things were called holy because God wanted you to know that they were not for profane use, for your use, but rather those things were for God's use. You and I are not to treat holy things, things dedicated to God, as if they were for common use, as if they were for our own personal use. Now, there's another interesting consideration about this 
holy things business. And it's the fact that holy things may look just like profane things. In fact, everything in the Bible that is holy, except God, had to be made holy. Holy things almost always start out as profane things, but through the making holy process. There's actually a Hebrew word for that, and I'll mention it in a second. Holy things almost always start out as profane things, but through the making holy process, they become holy. The making holy process in the Hebrew is kodesh. Kodesh is the separating out action. It is the making holy action. The making holy process in the Hebrew is kodesh. Kadash is the separating out action. It takes what was originally created for common use and gives it to God for his use. And then that then makes that once common but now holy thing special. Does that make sense? By way of illustration, the first time that we see this word kodesh, that's the adjective meaning holy. It's very easy to get confused with these similar sounding words. The first time we see the word kodesh is in Exodus 3.5. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with this part of scripture. This is the famous encounter with the burning bush. Now, let me Read the preceding verses so you can get a little perspective. This is Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out of him, called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The ground where Moses was standing may have looked like regular old ground, but Moses was not to treat it like regular old ground. You know, you can walk around with your shoes on over regular old ground, but you can't do that with holy ground. Moses was to show the separatedness of that ground by showing reverence to it. And he did so by taking off his shoes because the ground was now holy ground. Now, as a side, Scholars cannot seem to agree as to whether the ground that God called holy ground was always holy, meaning that it had always had some special significance before God and Moses arrived there, like maybe some important sanctuary in the past. Or it was now holy because God was taking it for his exclusive use during this conversation with Moses. Scholars debate those sorts of things. Well, can I tell you it doesn't matter? Because God claimed it as his own. In biblical language, God made it holy unto himself. And, he, and Moses, by the simple act of taking off his shoes in obedience treated it as special and not profane. Moses was commanded to treat that ground as holy, and he did so. When God says something is special, we had better treat it as special. And perhaps that's no more true 
than our calling to serve him. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and he devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now the question is, why? Why does God set aside certain things? Why does God make things holy? The one thing that should be obvious to almost anyone who studies God's word intently is that there's more to it than just a collection of stories. And you know, the world wants you to believe that about the Bible. They want you to believe that the Bible is nothing special. They want you to believe it's just typical religion malarkey. The world doesn't want you to see the Bible as anything other than a collection of random scribblings of a primitive, ignorant bunch of misogynistic, racist brutes. That's what they want you to believe. And you know what? That's easy to fall for if you don't know any better. This program, this ministry, is dedicated to at least proving to you that there is indeed something very special about God's Word and that you'll only realize that when you take it seriously. We go to a lot of trouble to make sure that you know that ignorance is deadly. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What knowledge? What do you think knowledge? What do you think knowledge, what knowledge is important to God? His knowledge, his word. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of me, basically is what God is saying. In this ministry, We want to make sure that you can't be misled. You remember this verse? Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And listen, the world is even going to try to convince you that there's no such thing as the devil. And let me tell you, if you were the devil, isn't that what you want people to believe? The devil wants to steal your soul away from God, and he can't do that if you're expecting him. The most successful thieves are the kind that you don't even know are there. Quite a few years ago now, I was at home when I got a call from the HR department of the company I had started working for only a few weeks before. The person on the other end asked me a very strange question. She said, did you just purchase a large screen TV on the company issued credit card? And of course, my answer was that I did not. Now, fortunately, I believe that that HR person expected that answer. And I believe that because she believed me right away. I didn't get grilled. There is no follow-up question. Now, of course, I grabbed my wallet only to discover that not only was my corporate credit card gone, but so was my personal credit card. And right away, I called the credit card issuing companies to cancel the cards. And and in that process, they asked me if those cards had been lost or stolen. And you know what? I didn't know how to answer the question. I assumed, since I still had my wallet, that the cards couldn't have been stolen. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how I could have lost them. Well, as part of the process, I was told by my company that I had to file a police report, I think a wise thing to do. So the next day, I went to the 
68th Precinct of the New York City Police Department, located on the edge of the Bay Ridge neighborhood of Brooklyn. It was my one and only time in a NYPD building, and I could not get the Barney Miller theme out of my head the entire time. Anyhow, I gave my statement to the world's largest police detective. The guy blocked out the sun. It was unbelievable. And in the course of the interview, he asked me where I had been the day of the incident. I told him I was working out at the New York Sports Club on 3rd Avenue and 72nd Street. Did you have your wallet with you when you were working out? No, it was in my locker. Was there a lock on your locker? I said, of course. I'm from Detroit. I'd lock things up in church if I had to. He said, what kind of lock was it? It was a combination lock with a dial. And then he said something rather unbelievable. He said, someone stole your credit cards out of your wallet while it was in your locker. Well, I was confused. I told him I didn't think that was true. I said, I would have noticed if my locker was broken into. I mean, the lock was on it just as it was when I put there. Then this gigantic cop took me over to, compu to a computer. He pulled up YouTube and showed me about a half a dozen videos that showed how easy it was to crack a lock combo. But then why put the lock back on? And while we're at it, why didn't they take the cash? None of the currency in my wallet had been disturbed. Well, he said that was all a part of the plan. Don't break the lock. Don't leave the locker open. Make it look like nothing happened. A busted lock would raise suspicion. Okay, well, what about the cash? Easy. We'd all notice if cash was missing, and we'd notice that right away, right? This bad guy didn't want me to know he'd been there. I mean, usually our credit cards are stowed in some sub pocket of the wallet, and if they're not there, it may take some time to notice. It worked. I had no idea the thief had come because he didn't want me to know that I was a victim. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. God is telling you, don't fall for the devil's tricks. Be prepared. Expect the unexpected. The devil's real, first of all, and he is wily. And you have to know your Bible to protect yourself against him. Your best defense against evil is your knowledge of God. Your best offense, your best defense against offending God is your knowledge of his word. Now I'm trying to bring us back from my little side trip. When in the Bible... God designates something as holy. He's setting it aside for his purposes. And in the Bible, he really has only one purpose, and that's to tell the story of his son. When God sets something aside in the Bible as holy, he's setting it aside to tell you the story of his son. That's the purpose of the Bible. I tell you this all the time. Do not rely on the Bible as your all-inclusive information source for the history of the universe. That's not why it was written. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that is true is in the Bible. For instance... This is my famous example. Don't 
try and figure out why the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs. In fact, I'll tell you why it doesn't mention dinosaurs. The Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs because the story that's being told doesn't have anything to do with dinosaurs. Now, we can be certain that dinosaurs existed in the distant past, but we can also be uncertain, certain that it's not important to the story of Jesus because dinosaurs are not mentioned in the Bible. Doesn't mean they didn't exist. Doesn't mean God's denying the existence of dinosaurs. He just doesn't mention them. If it's important to the story of Jesus, it's in there. And if it's in there, it's important to the story of Jesus. If something is designated as holy in the Bible, I know I'm repeating myself, then it is set aside for God's purposes. And God's purposes in the Bible all have something to do with Jesus, and you had better not mess with that. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, one thing we must never get wrong. One thing that will always help you when you're confused. God is not capricious. That's sort of the theme for today. God never does anything nor allows anything without a reason. God is calculating. He is exact. His ways are certain. And because all of that, and because of all of that, he's not hard to figure out. Human beings are hard to figure out. God is not. What God wants you to know, he'll tell you. Sometimes in words, sometimes in symbols, sometimes in actions. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. What's the message here? What is God trying to say? He's saying he's angry. That's not hard to figure out. Now, it's true, this seems a bit unusual, I mean, if God was in the habit of devouring everyone that did something he commanded them not to do, well, there wouldn't be very many people walking around. In fact, none is the exact number of people who would survive if God immediately devoured everyone who does what he commands them not to do. So, so why the severity? Why the shocking, immediate severity? I admit this is truly unusual. So what is it that I always say when we come across something that seems out of the norm? I say when something happens in God's word that puzzles us, we look closer. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon. Now, this first part of verse 1 doesn't seem all that out of the ordinary. Nadab and Abihu are priests in the tabernacle. They are separated ministers unto the Lord who have been designated to minister to him and what God wants them to do. They specifically were tasked with maintaining the altar of incense. Nadab and Abihu, there were sons of Aaron. They were priests in the tabernacle, and it was their job to, at least that we know of, to maintain the altar of incense. Now, if 
you've been around with us the last couple of weeks, you know what the altar of incense is. And Nadab and Abihu took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon. From what we can tell, they were doing their job. At least they were in the process or they were on their way to do their job. They were, listen to me, they were doing what God had separated them out to do. They were set aside, I repeat, to minister unto God in the tabernacle. And if that's all we had to go on, if all we had was this first part, we'd be confused about God's actions as described in verse 2. But so far, we've only covered that first part. Let's read the whole verse because, well, God gave us the whole verse for a reason. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not, and offered strange fire before the Lord. Let's take a quick look at this word, strange. Now, the meaning of the word strange has changed, I think, quite a bit since the King James folks put it there. Today, when we hear the term strange fire, our minds take us to an image of maybe oddly colored fire or fire that burns sideways or something. Today, we think of strange as meaning peculiar or even weird. Well, that's not what the King James translators meant. Now, a quick look at the etymology of the word. Now, etymology just means the, the sort of the evolution of the word. If we look at the evolution of the word strange, it may help to clear this up a bit. It may help us to understand what's being said here. Now, the English word strange comes to us from the Latin word extranaeus, extranaeus from which we also obviously get our own word extraneous. Extraneous and extraneous both mean external, foreign, from without. When something is strange in the King James sense, it means it, well, doesn't belong. It's extraneous. It's strange. It's foreign. It doesn't belong there. It's profane. It's not holy. The fire that those ne'er-do-wells offer was not fire that belonged on that altar. What makes it strange fire? It's strange because God commanded them not to do it. It's strange fire because it's not a part of the story. It's strange because it's foreign to the story. God is telling a story and we had better not change it. If I were to conduct a poll and ask what people thought might be the biggest threat to the church, it would be my guess that Many, many of you would say, well, atheism. Most of you would say that godlessness is the biggest danger we face, and I'd say wrong. To be honest, atheism is not our problem. Atheism has never threatened God. You see, people just don't buy into a no-God world. In my opinion, it's actually impossible to feel that way. I believe that people are natural worshipers. Human beings naturally look for something to worship. It's a part of our creation. Listen, of all the things Jesus had to debate, 
when he, when he was here on this earth, the existence of God was not one of them. All of, of all the things that Paul had to debate, had to debate, the existence of God was not one of them. Of all the things that the early, early church had to argue over as they went out to evangelize the world, not once did they come across anyone who said, what's a God? Not even the devil is dumb enough to try to convince you that there's no God. You see, it's far more effective to understand the human need to worship and then use it against us. You're just not going to get people to stop worshiping. So just get them to stop worshiping God's way. That is precisely what Satan tried to do to Jesus in the backside of the desert. He didn't waste time trying to disprove God. Instead, Satan tried to change God. Satan tried to twist the narrative. Hey, Jesus, don't starve. Don't sacrifice. Don't suffer. God wouldn't want you to suffer. Instead, adapt progress. Take what God gave you to do a certain thing and then do another. God gave you the power to take care of yourself, Jesus, so why not turn those stones into bread? Change the plan. It's only a small change. If God's ways are too severe, too difficult, too inconvenient, why not use your power to change them? Matthew 4, 6, And Satan saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Take advantage of your privilege. Make yourself happy. You're too smart to fall for that silliness. Of thus saith the word. One time, Robert Schuller, the famous, now since passed on, founder of the Crystal Cathedral just outside Anaheim. I don't think it's called the Crystal Cathedral anymore. It's Christ Cathedral or something. When he was the head of that enormous church, He had this to say. Now hang on to something because this is going to be a little... Well, just listen. Robert Schuller, while at the time one of the leading voices in American Christianity said, quote, listen to this. Jesus knew his worth. His success fed his self-esteem. He suffered the cross to sanctify his self-esteem. And he bore the cross to sanctify your self-esteem. And the cross will sanctify the ego trip, unquote. Now, perhaps I don't know as much as Dr. Schuler did, but I can say this. He did not get that from reading the Bible. Then again, who needs the Bible, right? I mean, according to Schuler, we've been looking in the wrong place all this time. According to him, and again, I'm quoting, and now please don't make the mistake of thinking I'm doing anything except quoting Robert Schuler here. These are his words. These are Robert Schuler's insights. Remember, Robert Schuler was a leading Christian voice for many years in this country. He said, quote, 
Christian theology has failed to accommodate modern psychology. And then he goes on to say that Christian theology has failed to apply the proven insights of psychology to human behavior. The only way I can translate that is that Robert Schuller believes that the scientists are smarter than God. You know, I actually feel bad for those poor, ignorant boobs of the past 20th, 20 centuries, the past 20 centuries, who only had the Word of God to guide them to Christ. Don't you? You feel bad for them too? I mean, when you have modern psychology to replace the Bible, we've got it made, don't we? Again, let me remind you I'm being sarcastic. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Not sure you can stomach any more of this. Not sure I can stomach any more of this, but... Let me give you a few more examples of strange fire. One of the most beautiful churches you will ever see in your life is located in the borough of Manhattan in New York on Fifth Avenue around 29th Street. It's called the Marble Collegiate Church, and it was pastored for a little more than half the 20th century by a man named Norman Vincent Peale. Perhaps you've heard of Norman Vincent Peale. He was a very, very famous American Christian thinker. He's even been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in America. And he was given that award by Ronald Reagan for his, quote, contributions to theology. Leading Christian thinker. Now let me read you a little snippet from a book entitled Living for Christ in the End Times. Quote, In 1984, on the Phil Donahue program, if you don't know who Phil Donahue is, Phil Donahue was the Oprah Winfrey of my mother's generation. In 1984, on the Phil Donahue program, Peel announced it's not necessary to be born again. Those are Peel's words. You have your way to God. I have mine. I have found... This is, a, this is the pastor of one of the largest Christian churches in America. One of the most famous Christian churches in America. He says, it's not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God. I have mine. I found eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I've been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. I'm continuing to quote from the book, Living for Christ in the End Times. Phil Donahue was so shocked that he actually came to the defense of Christianity. But you're a Christian minister, he retorted. And you're supposed to tell me that Christ is the way and the truth and the life, aren't you? Peel replied, Christ is one of the ways. God is everywhere. Now, these aren't heathens outside the Christian city hurling flaming rocks at the citadel. These are men who, like Nadab and Abihu, are ministers unto the Lord, at least notionally. And you know, you can almost hear the devil busting a gut laughing. I mean, he hardly has to lift the finger to destroy the cause of Christ. We're doing it to ourselves. We're offering strange fire on the altar before the Lord. Why? Because we're too smart to follow the same book that Jesus did. I mean, Jesus was just a few years from dwelling in a cave and wearing a bearskin. Why should the fact that he exclusively taught from Scripture mean anything to us? 
sarcasm reminder alert. Let me just give you one more, if you can stand it. In 1997, 1997, you have to go all the way back there to prove your point. Must be something wrong with it. Do you think we've gotten any better since 1997? 1997 was the best we could, better than what we are now. In 1997, the General Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church sponsored what was called the Global Gathering Three. Now, I can only assume that there were two others that were held before this one. I certainly hope they were better than Global Gathering Three. At this particular conference, now remember, this is a Christian conference. Global Gathering 3, they're, they're still being held. These global gatherings are still being held. There's one in July of this year, 2019. Well, at the global gathering in 1997, there were several speakers, as there are at most every conference. Well, what's strange, at least in my mind, is that many of those who came to speak at a Christian conference seem to come to criticize, and some may say attack, fundamental Christian doctrine. In fact, one of these speakers declared, and again, this is not easy for me to quote, but here you go. One of the speakers at a Christian conference got up and said that the crucifixion of Jesus reveals an abusive father who's not fit for Christian worship. And then this, as if that wasn't bad enough, this particular expositor recommended that we should instead, quote, reveal, revere all the world's children as little messiahs equal to Jesus. Well, John, if that was so bad, then why doesn't God immediately devour them with fire? Well, I'm not sure. We should be asking that question, but my answer is, I don't know. But this I do know. Their fire is coming. As sure as Nadab and Abihu were destroyed, so shall all peddlers of strange fire. You can be certain of that. Well, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a preacher. We're all called. We are all called to gather in sheep. We are all called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when Jesus said that, he didn't mean make up and then preach the gospel. He had something very specific in mind. He said to tell them what I have commanded you. We're all called for this. Well, how do I know what's true and what's not true? My church doesn't say these things, John. How do I protect myself? Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. 
Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The only way to fight bad doctrine is with good doctrine. And the only way you can do that is to know your Bible. The only, the only place you will find good doctrine is in the Bible. You will not find it in a psychology book. You'll not find it in a Shinto palace. And you may not find it at a Christian conference unless they're preaching the word. And if you're hearing strange fire, get out of the way. Because there's going to be some devouring going on. It may not be here and it may not be now. If you're not being taught the Bible, there's some devouring on its way. Well, isn't the Bible old and outdated? Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. I don't know how you can get old and outdated out of that. God's word says of itself that it is forever settled in heaven. Well, isn't the Bible full of errors? Let's ask Jesus. John 10.35, the scripture cannot be broken. Those are the words of Jesus himself. Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. Does that sound like someone who thinks the Bible is full of errors? Well, he didn't really mean that, did he? He was just saying things he was expected to say. He was just following the customs of the day. So you're saying that Jesus is a liar, or at least you're saying he's unreliable. You're saying he can't be relied upon to be completely honest with you. Is that what you're saying? If you can't trust what, what Jesus said in the Bible, you're saying that he's either a liar or unreliable. If you don't believe that Jesus believes that Scripture cannot be broken, then why are you worshiping him. Why bother going to church? Listen, I know at least one or two people who I am certain will be honest with me in just about any situation. I'll give you their names and then you can start worshiping them. If you don't trust Jesus, then you have no business calling yourself a Christian. Either he is righteous, and that includes being completely honest, or he's not worthy of worship. This is precisely how we get to the point where we have church leaders who feel they can put strange fire on the altar. They don't trust Jesus. They don't trust that God is God. They don't trust his word. And listen. If he can't meet the needs of the entire population of the world, then he's not God. If you think you need to change the way God does things, if you think that God's holiness is flawed, then why do you call him God? In his word, he says he is holy. In his word, he says certain things are holy. If you don't believe him or you disregard the validity of that statement, if you disregard the truth of what he says, then, well, ask Nadab and Abihu how that sort of thing works out. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because God has not devoured the modern-day strange firebearers, that that means he won't. Don't make that mistake. Let me leave you with perhaps the best advice you'll find in Scripture. It comes to us from the writer to the Hebrews. 
chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Let us have grace whereby we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.